Turn to the book of Joshua. So it's real easy to find. First five books of the Mos- books of your Bible, all written by Moses. The very next one is Joshua. Joshua begins what is commonly known as the historical portion, the historical perspective, if you will, tonight as we begin the historical part of the story of the children of Israel. And as we'll see on Sunday, we very often speak about our Bibles as being the story of redemption and in it being that scarlet thread, that that line of Christ's blood that runs from Genesis to Revelation. And here in the book of Joshua, we begin a very interesting, a very impactful book, and a book that often is taken out of context because you start to get some crazy folks who think that we ought to be engaging uh, in holy war today. Look, the Jewish people did it going into Canaan, so we ought to just go you know, shoot somebody in the name of Jesus. Uh, and it absolutely is not to be taken that way. Uh, it, it is a very specific book for a very specific people, but the implications to our spiritual lives is huge. There may well be no greater character that we could say typifies Christ in all of the Old Testament than Joshua himself. He is one of the clearest pictures uh, that we see. He is also probably, some people would say, second to Daniel. But I think perhaps in a leadership capacity, it is Joshua who is the greatest leader in the book, in the Old Testament. And so as we look tonight, we're just going to get a couple of verses. We're going to do an introduction because it's extremely important for us to place this in context. Now, to help you do that before we even get to our study that I've prepared tonight, you have to remember where this is now going to take place. This is the Jewish people. They have finished their captivity in Egypt. They've been set free by a miraculous hand of God. They have been sustained for 40 years in the wilderness. And God made them a promise, which he is now going to make sure that they begin to realize and keep. And so this is the beginning, if you will, of the Jewish people really coming into their own. And so as we begin the book tonight, keep it in that context they're heading towards the promised land. They're, they're heading towards Canaan. And this is a book of battles. It's a book of war. Uh, it is a book wherein we see the Jewish people on the highest heights of success and in the lowest points of despair. And because we see both extremes, we get a beautiful picture sometimes of our own lives as we wage spiritual war. Because there are days when we're winning. Amen? Uh, I don't know about you. I have days like that. I'm just like, you know, nothing can touch me. I am invincible right now in Jesus. And then I have those days where some little dumb thing, like the tiny city of Ai, uh, is my nemesis. Uh, I thought I had 
you know, the day before, I'm like Elijah on Mount Carmel, and now I'm running from little tiny Jezebel. Uh, it, it is a picture of our of our life in Christ to some degree, and so tonight, uh, our introduction to this wonderful book. I want to ask you to just pray with me, Father, as we, your people, God, we we some of us have wandered recently in the wilderness, Lord. Some of us are reaching right now for the promised land. God, some of us have failed to take hold of the promises that you've given. Lord, some of us tonight need to be encouraged as you have called us your children. And so, God, we ask that you would work in our midst. And, Lord, help us to fall in love with you and with your word, with prayer, uh, with thanksgiving in our hearts tonight. God, we ask that you would just move in this place. Lord, thank you for your people. Lord, I thank you for my, my family tonight, God, that's here. Uh, we pray that you would work in our midst, God. Would you bless us with your presence in this place? Help us to hear and understand, and to know and to obey what our Father God who loves us would say to us tonight. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Verse 1 here in the book of Joshua. And it sets the historical perspective for us in a, in a very concise way. And after the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord. Now remember that Moses was perhaps uh, one of those people that we would put in that list of great leaders. Maybe he might be on the top of your list. He was certainly a great leader. But he stumbled at the finish line. He tripped at the end of his days. He did not finish well. And because he didn't finish well, God said, you shall not enter the promised land. Now that seems kind of harsh to me sometimes. It's like all the things that Moses put up with, with these stiff-necked, hard-hearted, stubborn Jews. And I don't say that myself. That's what the Bible says about the Jewish people in the wilderness. He calls them a stubborn and stiff-necked people whose hearts are hard. Moses was their leader. But there is a warning at the beginning of this book about finishing well. Moses did not finish well. And I want to take just one minute, and then we're going to pray, actually. Probably some of you saw because it was national news. My dear brother Bob Coy, he's a friend. He stumbled at the finish line. It breaks my heart. Men... You better steal your hearts. You better purpose in your heart to finish well. Because the enemy hates you as a man of God. Ladies, you better be what God's asked you to be. You need to be the support for your husband. You need to be that mother to the children 
you need to be all that God's called you to be lest you stumble at the finish line. You need to have your eyes on Jesus. You need to be in the Word. You need to be in prayer. And you need to be trusting in the power of the Holy Spirit. Because if you're trusting in anything, if you're willing to strike the rock when God says, just speak to it, you may well find yourself stumbling before you reach the finish line. I want to finish well. And I want you to finish well. Don't think that the enemy isn't going to try and kill you. Because he will. And I don't care where you are in God's kingdom things. Maybe secretly there's somebody in here who has five doctorates in theology. And you think you know it all. I can tell you right now, that does not make you immune to the attacks of the enemy. It's the story of this book. Please, because I love you, stay strong and don't stumble. I want to pray for my friends, my family in Fort Lauderdale right now, because it's just, it's heartbreaking. Father, we... I want to lift up my friend, Pastor Chet, who right now is trying to field the questions from the media. Lord, for the teachers that try and make it through the gates to teach their classes that can't break through the media lines. God, we want to just ask that your grace would be sufficient. And Lord, that's your church. It was never Bob's church. It's your church. And you're heartbroken over what's happening to your church. And so we ask that you would spare them, that you would shield them, that you would guide the the assisting pastors, Lord. Just pray for Trent and Jose, Emmanuel. Lord, we just lift them up. And God, we know that you're sufficient. And so we ask that you be their strength and their shield and their portion, God. Would you touch them? Would you fill them? Would you defeat the enemy at the door, God? Would you tear down the strongholds? Oh, Lord, we pray for Bob and Diane, God. You're the great God who restores. And God, you're bigger than our sin. And we ask that you be merciful and gracious and kind and that you would do a great and mighty work, Lord, in their lives. Pray for Christopher. Lord, we just ask that you touch him. And so, Lord, we don't want to stumble. Cause us to forsake evil, Lord, in all of its many facets. Help us to do what you say. Help us to never flirt with danger. Help us to turn off the TV and the computer and to get on our knees and inquire of the God who loves us. We love you. We praise you. God, please, spare your name the insult. Lord, spare you for your name's sake, O Lord. Move.
we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. And after the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, it came to pass that the Lord spoke to Joshua, the son of Nun. Pastors, teachers, leaders in ministry do not have a job. They have a calling. And unless God has called, you'll never be successful. You may have big church, but you'll accomplish little, if anything, for the kingdom. It's a calling. And Joshua was called of God. He was actually Moses' assistant. And there's kind of a picture here of how God often raises men up from within. We've seen in the last six months the passing of Pastor Chuck and raised up from within and right behind him was his assistant, Brian Brotherson, my friend, man who I serve with. Connie and I both serve with. It's how God very often does it. He brings along a trainee. And Joshua is the most wonderful picture of someone who was willing to be second for however long God said, you stay second. But he was ready when he said, it's your time. And he said, Moses, my servant is dead. And now, therefore, arise and go over this Jordan, you and all this people, to the land which I am giving them, the children of Israel. And so God begins writing this story of this man. And what comes in view is the Abrahamic covenant first made uh, to Abraham there in Genesis chapter 15, and very specifically, the land of Canaan. And very frequently, people confuse the land of Canaan and the promised land, and they think they're different places. And some people think that Canaan was a literal type of heaven. And I don't believe it was, and I don't believe it's intended to be that way. It's kind of picturesque in some ways. But Canaan was on this earth, and nothing ever on this earth can be confused with heaven, because it's not the same. However, it is a picture of the promises that God gives us. And when God makes a promise, God keeps the promise. And in this case, strangely and oddly enough, uh, there in Exodus chapter 3, it says in verse 7, And the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people which are in Egypt. Can I remind you that God hasn't missed any of your affliction? As I got a text on Monday morning from, from Pastor Brian, I was actually supposed to meet with Bob Coy this month in Florida regarding some things that we were doing together and he says you don't need to go 
It was an affliction. It's like, I think my text back was, oh, no. The enemy seeks to destroy. He's roaring as a lion. He wants to kill you, destroy the work of God. You're going to go through affliction. And the children of Israel went through affliction. But their time in that affliction was over. And there's going to be a time when uh, the things that you're going through will be over. That's why 1 Corinthians 15:58, one of my favorite verses of encouragement, is be steadfast and movable, abounding in the labor of the Lord, knowing that that labor is not in vain in Him. You've got to keep on keeping on, family. You've got to keep on pressing on. You're going to have to do the hard things at times. I heard the cry by the reason of their taskmasters, for I know their sorrows. Nothing had escaped God. Not one lash to the back of the most insignificant Jew had been unnoticed by God. God hasn't missed a single thing. Not one pain that you're going through this day has God missed. And I am come down to deliver. God has always come to deliver. That's always been the plan. Jesus Christ was the deliverer before he came to this earth. I am come down to deliver and to take them out of the hand of the Egyptians and I will bring them up out of that land unto a good place and large. To a land flowing with milk and honey unto the place of the Canaanites. Now, as you'll see tonight, if you don't already know, those two things are almost mutually exclusive. A land flowing with milk and honey, a broad place, that means an easy place, a place where you'll dwell in safety. But it was already inhabited by their sworn mortal enemy, the Canaanites. Arch enemy of the Jews. If you look at the table of nations there in Genesis chapters 9 and 10, Canaan was the son of Ham. He was the grandson of Noah. And Canaan was the father of Sidon. That would be Tyre and Sidon. Not so good with the Jews. Amen? The Jebusites, the Amorites, the Hittites, the mortal enemies of the Jewish people got to the promised land before the Jews did. And yet God says, because I promised to Abraham the land from the river Euphrates, the great river, to the river in Egypt, the Nile, that's my land, I gave it to my people, and I don't care who's in it, it's yours. Do you have that kind of boldness in your spiritual life? God's promises are true, and they're yes and amen. And I'm not talking about naming it and claiming it. I'm talking about you receiving what God has promised. You know, He's promised you a new heart, a renewed mind, strength in your time of trouble, peace in the midst of the storm. Do you you see what I'm saying? We're not people of the promise as the Jews are. That promise was made to Israel. It's for them. It's for the Jewish people. But we've been made exceedingly 
Great and precious promises is what the book of Romans says. Far greater than any land. But your land is inhabited by Canaanites. You're going to have to fight for it. And we're not talking about holy war. We're talking about you being righteous when someone else is being unrighteous. We're talking about you standing when everybody else is bowing, just like Daniel did. You see, the land was already full of the enemy. And when you look at these people who were gathered in that land, it included Sodom and Gomorrah. It included Lachish, which I'm going to show you here in a little bit. Connie and I visited there just a year ago. The biblical city of Dan. You see, you got to know what's yours. And you need to be willing to fight to get it. Because I can tell you this, you're a trout swimming upstream. Okay? You're a salmon that's been out in the Pacific Ocean all summer long, and it's time to make it back to the headwaters where you were born, and you're going to have a tough swim. Because the world hates you. The Canaanites already live there. But God has given you this earth as an inheritance. Do you know that? The Bible says you're going to rule one day as priests and kings with him. What it says. So it's kind of time to stop taking second place and take first where we belong. In a spiritual sense. You see a lot of Christians fight from defeat instead of from victory. As we look at this book, it's the sixth book of the English Old Testament. If you look at the Jewish Old Testament, if you look at the Tanakh, you're going to find that all of the duplicated books like First and Second Kings, First and Second Samuel, so on and so forth, those are all grouped together. And so this is actually the, the first book as far as they're concerned, that isn't the Pentateuch. And so this is a very important book to the Jewish people. It's named after Moses' successor. And interestingly enough, you're going to see very shortly that as the last thing that we find in the book of Genesis is basically here's Joseph dies. Now, if you remember the covenant, it's the covenant that first went to Abraham to Isaac, and to Jacob. Amen? Jacob's last heir, direct heir, Joseph, is the bearer of the promise. And so the promise is now going to actually be to take the land. That was part of what was said. I'm going to send you into the land. And so as we begin to unwind this, the Jews under Moses carried his bones across the Sinai throughout the end of the wilderness wanderings, and they are literally at the door. So if you look at a modern map of the Middle East today, as you see from Egypt coming out of Egypt and across where the north end of the, where the Suez Canal now crossed across into the Mediterranean, when you get to that place, you're at the edge of the Sinai. 
And so the Jews have been wandering in what's called by the Arab people the anvil of the sun. One of the most inhospitable places on earth. Gets below freezing during the winter and over 120 during the summer. Not a real nice place. There is not one single permanent body of water in 154,000 square miles. Not one. You got to go all the way to the Euphrates and all the way over to the Nile. Everything else is salt water or it's rainwater collected on rocks. Springs. No rivers, no lakes. And so the children of Israel are dragging around these bones. And so the book of Genesis ends with a reference to the bones of Joseph. And the book of Joshua ends with a reference to the bones of Moses. It's as if we're saying, look, Moses didn't make it in. The promise was made. He shared the promise with us. And and the seed of this promise is that through Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, we're going to take this land. And so it's an important picture for us to understand. And basically the Genesis account begins with creation and ends with a coffin. Begins with glory. The Lord works on a on nothing. Ex nihilo in the Latin. In the beginning was nothing, and everything that got created, God created. Began with glory. It ends with the grave. It began in the vastness of eternity. It's going to end with shortness of time. People just absolutely understanding that their life is short, and and so. It's interesting that this book really begins the commentary on on the brevity of life, if you will. It's kind of this final statement. Look, you guys have been lugging around bones. It's not about the bones. It's about the life that you live while you're here. Because the bones can't talk. The bones can't accomplish anything. The bones just represent the promise that I've made. And so in this book, it's kind of the beginning uh, of this very personal story. Joshua's name is very interesting. And when we speak about uh, taking Hebrew names or Greek names or Aramaic names or whatever, and we take them and put them into another language, that's called transliteration. It means to take from one language and place it into another language. And so when you transliterate the name Joshua, if you're doing it from Hebrew, it means Jehovah is help or Jehovah is savior. It actually, when it becomes the Greek name, it's the name Jesus, and it actually comes from Yehoshua, and Yehoshua is a transliteration of Oshea or Hosea, whom we happen to have already studied, and it literally means Yahweh is salvation. And so this, the name of this character gives us some insight into what God's trying to speak to us. And he's really saying, that, look, what did God promise to Adam? He said, I will make myself a sacrifice. He said, I will become a sacrifice for you. Because Adam and Eve biffed it, Amen. 
Adam and Eve took that perfect, wonderful, idyllic environment, and out of all the things they couldn't do, they did that one thing. God's response was, I will make myself a sacrifice. And so what does God do? God slaughters an innocent animal. In the process, he gives them the perfect picture of what would have to happen from there on out for everybody. Sin results in death. Death results in necessity of a sacrifice. And so Joshua is coming into this land that's the promised land, and what he's saying is with his life is here's how the sacrifice is going to happen. It's going to be the innocent dying for the the unjust, if you will. And so as you begin to kind of look at these things, I want to show you just a couple of things. Joshua was just a, he was just a born leader. When Joshua born in Egypt in a period of slavery to his father Nun, uh, in, not a nun, by the way. That would also be an oxymoron. It, 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 he, we know nothing about Nun, but we do know uh, that he was of the tribe of Ephraim. And so that would make him part of the focus of the northern tribes. In other words, basically everything north of Jerusalem. And so you have Israel in the south, Ephraim in the north. Uh, he was Moses' general. So if you look at these passages of Scripture, you can read these accounts later for yourself. He's Moses' general. Basically, during the time that Moses was actually fighting, while Aaron and Hur, you remember them, held up Moses' arms, it was Joshua that was in the valley fighting. He's the commander of the troops. He's the one that was actually engaged in warfare. And so he wasn't afraid to get in the middle of the battle. Beautiful picture of us. We need people to hold up those in leadership's arms, but we also need generals that aren't afraid to go down and get in the battle. Uh, He was Moses' servant, we see in Exodus 24. So he spent a long time under the tutelage of Moses. So not only was he uh, a general, not only was he uh, a leader in that sense, but he was a servant leader. He knew exactly what it meant to do everything that was asked of him. And so he, he became part of Moses' entourage, if you will. So we find him on the mountain when Moses receives the law. This is an important guy. And he's a very broadly experienced man. Uh, he's one of the 12 spies, Numbers 13 tells us, that goes into land. You, we're going to get to that story. But if you remember the story, and it comes from Numbers chapter, thir- chapter 13, of all the people, God makes the promise. Twelve spies go in, and most of them come back with, it ain't happening, except for Joshua and Caleb. And so he's a guy that can see beyond the battles, see beyond the war. He, he can see the promise. And that is so important in our spiritual lives that like Joshua, we're able to look to the promises of God and see beyond the battle that's before us today. That beautiful picture that we see in, in, a, in a microcosm in Peter's life. When Peter was in the storm, when he's in the boat, he was perfectly okay as long as he kept his eyes on Jesus. Amen? Same exact principle here. 
This was no easy task, and we're going to visibly see it here in a moment. He was a military leader. He's a political leader. He's a spiritual leader. He was a true leader. It takes all of those things. One of the problems that we have in our nation today is we have people who are trained in politics, but they're not actual real leaders. They've simply gotten a degree in political science. They spent some time as community organizer. But they're not real leaders. They're not gifted in their heart to lead. They simply have a shingle they hang on the wall. It says, look, I ought to be a leader. But they're not real leaders. And you can tell because when the going gets tough, they get going. They're, they're out of there. He was a capable administrator. He had all kinds of gifts. Very, very, very well-rounded. And so God himself, we find, selects Joshua. Very, very, very important that we recognize that when God does those types of things, it's not up to us to disagree with him. I can tell you that having been around Calvary Chapel for a long time, I have questioned some of God's appointments. Uh, I've even questioned my own appointment at times. It's like, are you sure that was you, Lord? But God indeed does choose to use the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. And sometimes he doesn't pick the, the tallest guy. We know that, amen? Look at David. You know, all the sons of Jesse. Well, I do have one more, but he's a midget lunch sack carrier. I'll pick him. That's how God works. And it's interesting because in all these books, they're relatively simple. None of them really are. Sometimes we have who the author is. In the historical books, we generally don't. And so it's true with this particular book. Every last one of the former prophets, every one of their books is completely anonymous. So whether they wrote them themselves or whether they're written down afterwards, we don't know. But I can tell you this. These events, uh, especially from the Battle of Jericho on, took place about 3,000 years ago. So this is a long time ago. It was fully a thousand years before uh, the birth of our Lord. And so this was under clearly the Old Covenant. Nobody was lugging around uh, a Bible as we know it today. They had very limited understanding. And so the dispensation of grace had not come. They were still under the law. And they were still under the commands of the Lord to go in and possess the land. And so in looking at it, you have to look at the contents that way. And so there's only a couple of things to look at. There's the conquest of the land, which is 12 chapters long. And then there's the settlement of the land. Okay, They have to take it first. They can't settle it until they take it. And, and interestingly enough, the Jews are still fighting that battle today, aren't they? They're still being forced to take back the land that God gave them because it's now once again occupied by the descendants of Canaan. That's why when you're, when you're fighting against that particular aspect of Jewish life and society, you're fighting a losing battle. Because God's the one that made the promise. He's the one that gave them the land. And so it's God's land. He gave it to the Jews. It's best that you let the Jews have it. It belongs to God. And they're the ones that are supposed to be living in it. And so if you disagree with that, you've got a problem with God. 
You don't have a problem with Benjamin Netanyahu. You have a problem with God. God said it. And that frankly settles it. And then there is an address at the end where Joshua basically bids goodbye. And so as we we look at the content here, you, you see this incredible picture of grace in the midst of the law being borne out. And isn't that how it goes in our lives? Because if you want to continue in sin, if you want to have the law have an effect, then live by the law. The person who lives by the law will die by the law. And so if you want to live by grace now in our day and time, in the age of grace, you can do that, and you can have the grace of God, but you will also be held accountable, if you want to live by it, by the law that you choose to live. That's why when somebody comes to me, you know, shouldn't we keep the law? I said, no, I'm not keeping the law, because I don't want to be judged by the law. I want to be judged by grace. Now, do I want to be righteous? Absolutely. Do I want to have the characteristics, the qualities, the godliness that, that was exhibited in the Old Testament? I sure do. But I'm keeping it in grace. I'm not keeping it because I keep a sacrifice. It's not because I go to the temple because there isn't one. It's because I believe that Jesus Christ died on Calvary's cross. He was buried in the grave. He rose three days later. And because of that, I am a child of God because I believe in him. And so in this particular uh, setting, you can see God just moving in the lives of all these clearly unqualified people. Rahab, a prostitute, and yet she ends up in the Hall of Faith in the book of Hebrews. Isn't that nuts? Is that crazy? Just like out of all the people God could have picked, you're going to pick her? You know, you couldn't have had, you know, Rahab the baker's assistant or something? Matter of fact, when when you call so, I mean, it's so well known what her first profession was that when you call someone a Rahab, everybody knows what that means. Amen. It's like synonymous with with something not so good. And yet, she was a woman of faith. Man, if that's not grace, I don't know what grace is. That's God taking the broken, the humiliated, the degraded, and saying, "Look, I love you with all of my heart." And if you will surrender to me and do what I ask, because that's all it took in Rahab's case, she did what the Lord asked. That's it. Take care of them. And God says because of that, she ends up in the lineage of Jesus Christ. It's awesome. So it's previewing grace. And in the age of grace, uh, as we come through this book full circle, you're just going to see, you know, the Jews were asked to do some crazy things. Some things that we we really can't put our finger on today. Because we live in the age of grace, it's pretty tough for us to say, you know, well, uh, I've given you Nevada, and I want you to go kill all of the Canaanites in Vegas. God's not going to do that because of grace, Okay. Because they can be saved by grace, we don't need to take the land. We can simply battle it out in the heavenlies and wage war against the principalities and powers and rulers of the darkness of this age. And pretty soon they're going to feel really unwelcome because greater is he who's in us than he who's in this world. That's what happens now. But then it was a literal war. It's like, look, they're going to destroy you if you let them live. That's how serious God is about sin. 
And he's always been that serious about sin. The difference is the way we wage that war today. I wage it now in the spirit. It was a literal battle then. It meant literal war. And so we have to be very careful how we apply some of these things that we'll see in this book because they are clearly defined uh, in that biblical separation that we now live in between that which is secular and that which is spiritual because that's clearly laid out in the book of Romans. God has appointed governments, he's appointed kings and kingdoms, all for his plans and purposes, and we're actually supposed to be under the authority of those rulers that God's placed over us. That's why I will tell you, you haven't, you haven't been called to, to fight against our government at this point in time, because our government hasn't asked us yet to abandon our faith. We get to that point, we've got to talk. But the bottom line is they haven't done that. And so we are to be under that authority. And this time, there was either theocracy or paganism. And that's it. You had one of those two choices. And so in the Jewish people's case, they were the only theocratic group on the face of the earth where God governed the people. Everybody else was some form of paganism. And so God gave them the land. It's now occupied by pagan heathens who will destroy everything God holds dear. And so be careful. And God simply pronounces then a series of bans, the sherim, upon those people. He says, look, this can't happen. If you leave it, it will rot at you like cancer. And so in essence, the Canaanites are a picture of sin. It's what sin does. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. Amen? We now deal with that by grace. But then it was literal. Look, you leave a few pagans in your town, they will multiply, and those pagans, when they multiply, will eventually take over you. So deal with it. Today, we deal with decisively with sin by the Spirit of God instead of with the sword. Back then, it was a sword. It's also common with the Greeks, by the way, and it was with the Romans as well. And so it was a relatively common practice that when you were moving into the land, the Assyrians did the same thing. Moved into a land, they took care of everybody else. Matter of fact, that's how the Samaritans came about. They said, we're not leaving these Jews to continue to to breed pure Jewish people. We'll make sure that everyone is not married to a solid Jew. We'll make sure that they marry at least one Assyrian in their family, and then the Jewish people will die out. So it was very clear that was the that was the plan all along. And so one uh, element in the explanation here that we need to look at is that what God is really doing as the Jews enter the promised land is he's pronouncing judgment on sin. He still judges sin. Amen? But he does it now by the grace of God. He did it then literally by taking your life. It was an eye for an eye. It was a tooth for a tooth. If you killed somebody else's cow, they got to kill your cow. If you took someone else's life, they got to take your life. That's how God judged sin then. He doesn't judge sin like that anymore. Thank God. Amen? Thank God that we we don't have that uh, to deal with in our daily lives. I can't even imagine what that would have been like. But the only way for, for grace to have a chance was for there to be some righteousness on this earth. Man is what? Sinful. His heart is desperately wicked. And who can know it? 
So if there's no evidence of righteousness in a, in a people group, what do you think takes over over time? It's sin. It's carnality. It's paganism. And that's exactly what had happened in the land. So God says, look, we got to deal decisively with this. And so this is going to be a book of conquest and war. But picture it for the reason that God sent them there to do it. He's going to establish eventually your king of kings, your lord of lords, is a, everyone together, Jew. So if there's no Jewish people, how many messiahs do you think there are going to be? There's only one anyway. Okay? So if there's no Jewish people, if they don't survive, if they do not take the promised land, there will be no king of kings and no lord of lords. And so this was serious business on the part of God. He says, look, I'm going to save mankind, and I have a plan to do it, and because I told you how it was going to happen, and he's going to write all of these things through the various prophets, Isaiah is going to be a Jew. Hosea was a Jew. Amos was a Jew. Malachi was a Jew. You get the picture? We would know nothing about Jesus apart from the Jewish people. He's a Jewish carpenter. And so, had a problem. There's one people group that stood in the way, and that was the Canaanites. And they were a very, very, very pagan people. And sometimes people are like, well, you know, Jesus said, love your enemy. And yet God told him to kill everybody. Not only did God tell him to kill everybody, he said, don't even take their stuff. Because their stuff is cursed. He says, you go in there and you wipe them out. You wipe them completely out. Now, we have a tough time with that. I have a tough time with that today. And people ask me the question, here's why. Because they were under the law. And they we're not going to repent. They were going to continue that way, and Jesus was never going to come as long as they're in the promised land. And so this is a part of God's plan. He gave everybody an opportunity in the garden. Who didn't have an opportunity to live a sinless life? Nobody. They had an opportunity to live a sinless life. They chose to sin. And from that day forward, everybody else has had a choice to make. Do I sin against God? Or do I live righteously? In this time, there was no living a fully righteous life by the blood of Christ because Christ hadn't come yet. You lived a righteous life in the Old Testament sacrifices, in what they knew that God had produced and, and caused them to have a picture of in the tabernacle in the wilderness. He said, here's the things you need to do. And so they're coming up against the people that represented the other side. Jesus said, you're either for me or, okay, the Jews were for him, the Canaanites were against him, period. Hard for us to rationalize, but that was the case then. So we shouldn't expect to find completed Christian ethics uh, a thousand years before Jesus puts his feet down in Bethlehem uh, through Mary. And so as you... Look at these things. Remember that, because it's extremely important. 
as we look at the the cities, because you're gonna you're gonna hear this warfare now. As we said at the beginning, who are the Jews? They are a bunch of ragtag hobos who have absolutely nothing with them, who've been wandering in the most inhospitable place on planet Earth for 40 years. So they are not exactly an army, are they? They got a bunch of, they have had by this time nearly 2 million people, by the way. They had a lot of people. But they absolutely were not prosperous. They had survived the wilderness wandering. And so when they come to the promised land, they're met by cities like this. This is the city of Dan. It would later be named Lachish. But this is the actual city wall. These are the fortifications of the city of Dan. They're still there today. And so when they got to this city... Deuteronomy chapter 18 had forewarned them in verses 9 through 13. When you come into the land, this is Moses writing. He's saying, here's what's going to happen. These are the things you're going to face. When you come into the land which the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not learn to follow the abominations of these nations. He had already told them, be ye therefore separate, says the Lord. You are called out. We are called out as saints, by the way. But he says, don't do what they do. Verse 10, he goes on, There shall not be found among you anyone who makes his son or his daughter pass through the fire. That means worship the sexual god of Ashtaroth and Molech. So you won't go that way. Okay? One who practices witchcraft. One who's a soothsayer. One who interprets omens or a sorcerer, one who conjures spells, a medium, a spiritist, or one who calls up the dead. So Moses, writing Deuteronomy, says when you get into the land, you can't do what they do. Not for you. For all who do these things are an abomination to the Lord. And because of these abominations, the Lord your God drives them out before you. You see, it was God who sent them into the promised land to drive out the abominable things from the land. So it was God who was saying, look, there's only one way to make this happen, and that's for you to push out those who are doing these things. And he goes on further to say in verse 13, for you shall be blameless before the Lord your God, for these nations which you will dispossess Listen to the soothsayers, the diviners, but as for you, the Lord your God has not appointed such for you. There is no peaceful coexistence. So the ragtag hobos from Sinai get to cities like this. They come to the biblical city of Dan. It was a fortified walled city. By the time you wander around it, it takes about two and a half to three hours to wander around the entire outside city walls to this day. The gates of the city fortified at every corner. Uh, It's one of the most uh, well-researched archaeological sites in all of Israel. Um, It it was a place of political intrigue. It was inhabited by this fierce, uh, very, very talented, extremely well-armed group of people who were as pagan as pagan could get. And so... They weren't going to surrender. 
There was no Dan, the city walls, the ones that you're looking at here, some of them were 15 to about 40 feet tall. Uh, it, they were taller than that in that day, and in fact, there were three sets of them. So if you got to tell Dan, the city, of biblical city of Lachish, when you got to the bottom along the Roman road that would later be uh, put in by the Romans, but it was the Canaanite road at the time, a stone road, which is still there, 3,000 years later, when you got to that stone road and you got to any one of the gates of the city, you would be facing first a wall that was someplace between 15 and 40 feet tall, then a terrace of about 100 yards deep. At the top of that terrace was another wall that was 15 to 40 feet tall, and another 100 yards in, another wall 15 to 40 feet tall. Now imagine you're coming half-starved, from the most inhospitable place on planet Earth, and the first place you come to is Jericho, which is a city just like this, and you have to go through this entire land and dispossess, because God said so, the people who were in the land because they would not change, and they have high ground, they've got permanent water, they are well prepared, you are ill prepared. There wasn't any way but war. They weren't going to give up. What were the Jews going to do? Sit outside and thumb their noses at them? Make snide remarks about the Canaanites? Well, your mom wears army boots. Pretty sure the Canaanites were going to stay behind their fortified cities and forget it. And so God said, you're going to have to make war against them. It was the only answer. When you look at the, that map there and what you can't see in it because it's just frankly too small, it is also the headwaters of the Jordan River. It's the major tributary that feeds the Jordan. It's a, it, a nice size, we'd call it a creek actually, but it is, flows a lot of water. And so they had all the things that they needed to survive, the four essentials. Permanent water supply, the River Dan, those are the actual granaries from the Canaanite period. Those are 3,000-year-old food storage bins. This is the precursor to Tupperware right here. And that area that you're looking there in that, in that third picture is that blank space between the walls. So you have the outer wall, you have the secondary wall, and then you have the inner wall. These people were going to stay there for as long as they wanted to stay there. And so God said you're going to have to make war against them. And that is exactly what the Jews do. And so the entrance to the city, uh, by the time you would travel around it, uh, you would need an army in excess of 10,000 people to have them link arm in arm just to make it around this inner city. 10,000 people, most people can stretch about six feet. Do the math. 10,000 people stretching out six feet. That's how long it would have taken you if you were arm in arm, one person, just to wrap your arms around this Canaanite city. And so really the only answer was war. There was no diplomatic solution. They weren't going to be able to talk them out of it. They were going to have to fight them out of it. And so the land of milk and honey was already possessed by these people. And so the book of Joshua is basically the book of how the Jewish people took what God told them to take. And so... God says it. If you remember the original uh, covenant, he says, God said uh, to Abraham, I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant and his descendants after him. And, of course, that's where we find Isaac and Jacob after Abraham. 
And so as we begin our journey next week, we're going to see the battles, the conquests. But ultimately, what God was trying to do was bring his people rest. Amen? Isn't that what he's trying to do? we got battles to fight. we got wars to wage. But what he wants to do is bring us into his kingdom of rest. And so this whole book is really a picture of the spiritual battles that we fight, how we fight them, what types of enemies there are. They're all contained here in the book of Joshua. And so next week we'll begin in earnest our study here in the book of Joshua. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time tonight. And Lord, thank you for the, the wonder of your word, Lord, that we can look back on history, Lord, 3,000 years ago. And as we travel to Israel today, we can see that you weren't kidding. These cities were fortified, and they were full of people who hated you. And so, God, we, we pray that you would give us the right perspective. Lord, help us to, to draw deeply from the well of your spirit. Lord, embolden us, Lord, to fight hard in these last days. Lord, we don't know how long we have, but we know you're for us. And because of that, no one can be against us, Lord. We're, we're going to be just like Joshua at Jericho. Lord, we, we realize that you have already won the war. And we're just looking forward to cleaning up these final skirmishes before you take us home. So, Lord, help us, strengthen us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.